Uh, good, good morning, uh, beloved. Uh, happy Lord's Day. Uh, please open your Bibles, John to John 17. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. If you are using the Pew Bible, you will find the reading on page 903. <clears throat> uh, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. May God bless our understanding to this reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do not know why you would love us. There's nothing in us that could ever recommend us to you. But you have loved us, even so much that you sent your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us, to become sin for us, to pay the full penalty that we deserve to pay with hell forever. And you paid it through the blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to know what it means to commune with you. Know what it, help us to know what it means to pray to you. And spend time with you in prayer. Even as we open this... Um, portion of your holy word where our Lord Jesus was uh, lifting up his voice to you in prayer in what has come to be known as the great high priestly prayer. We pray in his name. Amen. I assume you are all well aware that the Pope came to America this week. It's been big news. He addressed a joint session of Congress on Thursday. He addressed the United Nations on Friday. He spoke at the White House. And something happened after the, the Pope spoke at the White House that has not been as widely reported. One of our U.S. representatives, Bob Brady from Pennsylvania, went up to the podium after the Pope had finished speaking and he took the glass of water that was up there that the Pope was using uh, to uh, wet his throat as he was speaking. And Bob Brady, one of our U.S. representatives, took that glass of water back to his uh, congressional office so that he and his wife could drink from it. And then he used the rest of the water to sprinkle it on his grandchildren. I'm not making this up. This actually happened. The congressman, one of 435 people 
elected by our nation's citizens to help determine the direction of our nation. <laughs> he was so proud of himself that he tweeted out pictures of he and his wife drinking the water that contained the Pope's saliva. He even asked the FBI to take fingerprints off the glass so that he could be certain that it was the Pope's glass that he was drinking from. The congressman is said to be a devout Roman Catholic. He drank the water somehow to obtain a blessing. Like much of Roman Catholicism, this is pure superstition on his part. The only thing he and his wife could have received from the Pope, besides his backwash, was a cold if the Pope happened to be sick. It is easy to ridicule this foolish congressman and his superstitious view of how a person can receive blessings. But I want to ask you this morning, how do you view prayer? Do you view prayer in a similar fashion? As long as you utter words in God's direction, and in, in those words with, in Jesus' name, Amen, do you think that that's going to cause you uh, to receive blessing from God? Do you treat prayer in a superstitious fashion? I guess is what I'm asking this morning. We're going to spend our time this morning during the sermon examining how Jesus prayed. And we hope to learn how we better can pray. How we can pray more effectively. The entirety of John 17 is a prayer that Jesus prayed immediately after he had taught his disciples. We've been going over now for uh, many weeks uh, Jesus' teaching in John 14, 15, and 16. And after that teaching, then he began to pray. That prayer that he prayed that is recorded here in John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. I had always assumed that this was the prayer that Jesus had prayed alone in the middle of the garden. You, know, you remember Peter and James and John, they went with Jesus and uh, while he was praying they fell asleep. I thought that that was the prayer that was recorded here in John 17. Actually, it's a different prayer. Look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, when he finished his teaching that began in chapter 14 and um, concluded at the end of, of uh, chapter 16, when he concluded those words, or when he had spoken those words, then it says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and he prayed. Jesus prayed this prayer not secluded away in the garden with only three of his disciples who fell asleep while he was praying, but rather he prayed this prayer in the presence of all his disciples in order that they might be encouraged by it. And so John records the contents of this prayer so that we also can learn from it and be encouraged by it. We will study the contents of this prayer over the next few weeks, but this week we're simply going to study the model of Jesus' prayer so that we might uh, be able to grow in our own prayer life as Jesus' followers. As we begin to look at Jesus' prayer, it is important for us to acknowledge that the discipline of prayer 
is not simple. It's not easy. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things we do as Christians. On a side note, I'm always amazed at how, how God gracious, uh, gracious, uh, sorry, I'm always amazed at how God is gracious to the little children. Adults struggle to pray. Adults struggle to know how to pray. But God often helps the smallest of children to pray very effectively. Uh, I also think sometimes about how God has raised up some of the world's smartest people. And has uh, they have uh, studied and received PhDs in biblical studies or in theology. Uh, and they spend their entire lives studying the Christian faith. But yet, God reveals to children um, the, uh, the, the essentials of the faith. And even small children are able to grasp these essentials and trust in God and are able to understand God in a way that some of these scholars um, are not able to do with all of their studies. This is not to say that children aren't born as spiritually alienated from God. They are alienated from God from conception. But God often reveals Himself to His covenant children in a very real and remarkable way. And so it's, it's always striking to me when I hear a child praying with a deep and earnest faith when we as adults struggle so much in our own efforts to pray. As I was saying before I went down that little rabbit trail, prayer is one of the most difficult things that we engage in as Christians. So the question is, why is it so difficult? Well, there are several reasons for the difficulty that we could point to, but in light of our study of John 17, I simply want to highlight one reason why it is difficult. And that reason is prayer, first of all, is an expression of our relationship with God. Prayer is where we commune with God. Prayer is where we lift up our hearts to Him and express our love for Him. It's where we try to express our utter thankfulness for His undeserved grace to us. Where we try and thank Him, thank him adequately. Uh, for His inexpressible love to us. It's where we cry out to Him because of all the ways we've sinned against Him. It's where we cry out to Him even more for all the ways that we have failed to serve Him faithfully. My point is, prayer engages, engages our deepest emotions because prayer is an expression of our relationship with God. It's very taxing when you give yourself in prayer to the King of the universe and spend time really communing with Him. Listen to Jesus' prayer in verses 1 through 5. And you can hear just on the face of it that Jesus is not going through a prayer list. He's communing with His Father. 
As I read, don't worry about the content so much. It's probably the only time you'll ever hear me say that about the Scriptures. We're going to look at the content of his prayer in depth um, more next week. But just listen to his tone of intimacy in verses 1 through 5. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I believe one of the reasons why so many Christians have difficulty praying is that they pray backwards. What I mean by that is they start at the end of what uh, or they start, the beginning of their, of their prayers is really what should be at the end of their prayers. Uh, they come to God looking for answers uh, rather than coming to Him looking for communion with their Heavenly Father. They come to God in prayer to get stuff from Him. Even good and godly stuff from God. But they don't come, first of all, or even second of all, or even at all, to commune with Him. What is the tone and direction of your prayers? Is it to commune with Him, or is it to get stuff from Him? Prayer was very important to Jesus. In the Gospels, we read many times of Him spending all night in prayer, communing with His Father. He would go away by Himself, just to pray. But he first of all was not making uh, requests or seeking guidance from God. He was simply communing with his Father, maintaining the strength of his relationship with God. I imagine that this is a whole different way of viewing the discipline of prayer than the way most Christians view the discipline of prayer. Let me go further down this path. If we only think of prayer as getting stuff from God, getting guidance from God, or, or making requests of God, then our whole idea, if that's the only thing we think about when we come to God in prayer, that's our only goal, then our whole idea of prayer is false. Let me illustrate it this way. What if you had a relationship with someone where your only goal was to get stuff from them? How would that, how would that person perceive your relationship? I think they would perceive it as feeling that, that it's very one-sided. And the person would feel used and unloved by you. God is not a machine. He's not a philosophical concept where we can just approach Him any way we want to. Well, He's a God answering, or a prayer answering God, and so I'm just going to come and make my prayer request to Him, and He's promised to, to uh, answer. And so we, we come 
with very little thought of Him, with no or very little thought of our relationship with Him. God, I need blessings. Come and bless me. God is a very personal being. He loves. He delights. He rejoices. Listen to Zechariah. Uh, I'm sorry, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, and this is God speaking, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Our God is a personal God. And He delights in His beloved. He delights in you. He loves to hear your heart. He loves to hear your expressions of love for Him. He loves to hear you, you bear your soul to Him. He loves to see you take a special delight in Him. Now just so I'm not mistaken, allow me to add that God also delights to hear our request and to answer them. I'm not saying that God does not love to hear our request and answer our request. He does. But He does not wish to be treated as a doormat. As we commune with God in prayer, I believe we will know better what requests we should make of God. And we'll avoid making those, those uh, requests of Him that dishonor Him. Uh, James chapter 4 talks about that. Oh, you, you uh, come to God and you make requests. Don't think you're going to receive anything from God because you only want to uh, spend what you get from God on your lust, James says. As we commune with Him, our requests will become much more effective because our heart will be united with God's heart and we'll know more instinctively how we should pray. Our prayers will be more effective because as we commune with God, we'll naturally meditate upon His power. We'll naturally meditate upon His ability to help. We'll naturally uh, uh, meditate on His willingness and His readiness to help. And so when we do make requests, we'll have this deep assurance down in our soul that He will answer. This is what it means when the Bible speaks of praying in faith. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13-15. through 15, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that if He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Does that passage from 1 John chapter 5, does that describe your prayer life? This kind of deep confidence that comes from knowing Him, from communing with Him, from loving Him and trusting Him wholeheartedly. Prayer in many ways is the supreme expression of our faith in God. 
Because in prayer, what we do is we take hold of God's promises. And we seek Him in an unwavering confidence that He is faithful to every one of His promises. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There is nothing that a man ever does which so proclaims his faith as when he gets down on his knees and looks to God and talks to God. Again, in quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm not saying that we express our faith simply by mouthing uh, words in God's direction. The prayer of faith is a prayer that looks to God and it says, God, I believe your word. I know that you are a rewarder of those who seek you diligently. I know all things are in your hands and are in your complete control. I come to you wanting my will to be aligned with your will and not vice versa because I know that you are all wise and that you love me. This is the tone that we find in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Now I've been arguing um, that prayer, prayer and faith, the kind of prayer that Jesus is praying here, is not self-centered. Rather, it is... Um, deeply selfless. But look what Jesus says in verse 1. As he begins praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Well, that sounds a bit self-centered. Glorify me, Jesus is saying. But look closer at verse 1. Because he says, before he says glorify me, he says, the hour has come. What is the hour? Well, it is the hour for his betrayal. It is the hour that will set in motion all the events that will culminate with him being nailed to the cross. In other words, uh, he is saying, Father, glorify me by nailing me to the cross is ultimately what, we're, what he's saying. And we'll look at this in more depth next week. And if you look closer at verse 1, there's really no self, selfishness here or self-centeredness here at all. Because he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. In other words, he's looking beyond himself and he's saying, God, glorify me that I may glorify you. How did Jesus glorify the Father? He glorified the Father, again, as we, um, it's very clear here in verses 1 through 5, by coming here to earth, by dying a sacrificial death, by saving a people for God. He glorified God by dying for, for sinners. He glorified God by, by becoming the, the, the Savior of sinners. So again, he's saying, send me to the cross, God, that you may be glorified in the salvation of sinners. God's priorities are driving Jesus' prayers. 
Not only is Christ making God's priorities his priorities, but he also submits himself to God's priorities. It's one thing to pray in a God-centered way. It's quite another to submit yourself to his priorities. We spend an awful lot of, our, of time in, our, um, in the, the short prayers that we pray trying to change God's mind. God, providentially, you're doing this. I want you to change the direction. But here, Jesus is submitting to the will of His Father. Not only that, Christ is making His prayers based on God's promises. The whole Old Testament promised and prophesied that God would bring salvation through the Messiah. And so, his attitude is, God, you have promised. That's why you sent me here. That is what I want to do. Help me, God, to do it. And so, essentially, he's praying, do it, God, do it. Be faithful to your promises. Even when it's going to mean me being nailed to the cross. And later in that, that prayer that we'll see later, that prayer in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, not my will, but your will be done. That's Jesus' attitude. And as his prayer is a model for us, it should be our attitude as well. We've just scratched the surface in this prayer. But can you see how different... This prayer is than the worldly superstition that uh, I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. The prayer Jesus is praying here is prayer that overcomes the world. This is prayer that makes God's priorities our priorities. This is prayer that submits to God's priorities. This is prayer that trust in God's promises and makes His promises the basis for our prayers. Most of all, this is a prayer that teaches us that prayer is first of all, primarily, communion with our heavenly God. I want to give you one assignment this afternoon. As you are spending time with the Lord on this Sabbath day afternoon, if you want to know how to commune with God, maybe go to a psalm, Psalm 1, for instance, and pray through that psalm. It's a short psalm. You may not even get through the first couple of verses after you spend time alone with the Lord, with the Lord uh, asking Him for the wisdom not to be carried away with the world's standards or asking Him for forgiveness for the way in which you have aligned yourself with the world there in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. But spend a little time with God just talking with Him about the things that He is teaching us and instructing us in the psalm. And you can learn how to commune with God in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we line up with the disciples as they came to you and said, Lord, teach us to pray. So that is our prayer this morning. Teach us to pray. Teach us how to commune with you.
in prayer. Teach us how to love you in prayer and express that love. Teach us how to trust in you in prayer. And how to pray the promises in prayer. God, your word tells us that we don't know how to pray. But you give us the Holy Spirit who teaches us. And so teach us, we pray, even as we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.